This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners, the need to strengthen and empower primary care, like the drive towards health equity, is one of the great causes of celeb of American healthcare. As David Blumenthal and Louisa Gustafson recently wrote in the Harvard Business Review, America's healthcare system seems paradoxically both endlessly innovative and profoundly dysfunctional. On one hand, we hear almost daily about flashy new ventures like the recent Amazon purchase of One Medical, a large provider of primary care that promises the transformative improvements in healthcare efficiency, quality, and service. On the other hand, the day-to-day performance of the U.S. healthcare system is an international embarrassment. The United States spends twice as much as any other high-income country on health services, while its maternal mortality, infant mortality, preventable mortality, overdose deaths, levels of chronic illness, levels of obesity, deaths from COVID-19, put it at the bottom of the pack in the developed world. And the American public is awash in personal medical debt, and even the best connected struggle to find a primary care physician. In this week's episode of The Race to Value, we're going to highlight the plight of primary care in the U.S. and share real-time updates of what is actually happening in the marketplace and facilitate a dialogue on how to improve the role, standing, supply, and compensation of primary care practitioners in the U.S. Joining us this week is Don Crane, former president and CEO of America's Physician Groups, or APG. Don recently served as the co-chair of the National Primary Care Summit that occurred on July 25th through 29th, and we'll be discussing with him the key insights from this important meeting. This was an event that the Institute for Advancing Health Value proudly sponsored, along with other key groups such as the Commonwealth Fund, Heritage Provider Network, Upstream, PCORI, Equality Health, Signify Health, and many other important organizations that are leading in the value movement. This event was made possible by our mutual friend, Peter Grant, and Don served as a co-chair along with other healthcare luminaries like Francois de Brantes, Dr. Clive Fields, Anne Greiner, Sean Martin, and Elizabeth Mitchell. Well, let's now welcome Don Crane as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. And if you like what you hear, make sure to go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review, and we'd love a five-star rating. Don, thanks for joining us this week to discuss this important challenge of transforming primary care in our country. I couldn't be more excited 
to have you on this podcast. However, this may be one of our most challenging interviews today. We want to talk about the recent Primary Care Transformation Summit. And this was a national event with 4,800 registrants and such an undertaking is easier said than done, given that the summit was so extensive. We had 33 mini summits, 26 plenary sessions, 150 faculty, and a veritable who's who in American healthcare. But let's give it a shot and let's talk about all the main themes that were discussed at this important event. Are you ready to have some fun, Don? I am indeed. Thank you for having me, Eric. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, Don, I thought we would start our conversation today by talking about the need for primary care transformation. During the introductory comments to the event, Dr. Richard Merkin, who is the CEO and founder of the Heritage Group, he stated the following, medicine is in the third decade of the 21st century, and it will be radically different than the past. There will be a convergence of technology, and medicine will be different. The science will be different. The world will be different. We can't embrace the status quo. Staying the same is the first step to getting worse. We must change the way we do primary care and the crazy ideas of today will be the genesis of breakthroughs tomorrow. And Don, there's so many reasons to transform primary care in our country. I mean, it's so important yet PCPs are underappreciated and underpaid in healthcare. And with the move to value-based payment like capitation, we're finally seeing opportunities to redesign primary care so that it can do what it's intended to do, take excellent care of patients. And the importance of this revolution is that primary care can no longer be the backwaters of medicine. It now has to be seen as the backbone of the value movement. And there's this focus by CMS and CMMI to focus on APMs and the MSSP to lead change in the healthcare ecosystem. But the primary care movement is also being led by the market, which is now even stronger and more likely to be permanent given the velocity of capital investment intended to create scalable, high-touch, advanced primary care models. So, Don, I wanted to ask you if you could provide your insights on the current state of primary care and why its transformation is so desperately needed to transform our American healthcare system. Well, excellent question. And I'll say that, first, it probably makes sense to talk about what kind of primary care we're talking about. Um, there is primary care where it exists within a fragmented PPO world. Um, there are primary care doctors operating in PPO, original Medicare, and so forth, and in a very suboptimal way where all of their skills and virtues and abilities that we need are not maximized, not even optimized. Then you have primary care in sort of a, an HMO, capitated, integrated world. And I'm reminded of uh, Chris Chen's comments in my interview with him during the summit, where he broke it into sort of three categories of primary care. The first level being the very rudimentary sort of gatekeeper primary care, important but not sufficient. The next being what he referred to as advanced primary care, so additional effort to coordinate care, a little more effort to minimize cost and improve quality with quality measurement programs and some amount of outreach. And then the third and final category he had in mind, he labeled transformative primary care. And in that regard, I think his definition syncs with my view of the primary care we need to get to. We have some examples of it now and we need to get to it across the nation. And it is one where it is indeed entirely more whole person, holistic, very much more proactive, very much more high touch, very much more social. 
includes the integration of behavioral health. That's the kind of primary care we need, and there's a bunch of reasons for it. It starts, I think, with kind of an appreciation for the demand side of supply and demand here in America. So 96% of the spend in, within Medicare, which is an important sector to look at, relates to individuals with multiple chronic diseases. So that's the demand, that's the disease burden, certainly in the Medicare population. It also happens to be the area of disease that is handled most of the time by primary care, clearly in concert with specialty care, but an awful lot of primary care is needed and utilized in treating multiple chronic diseases. And so it's just sort of what the market is screaming for, though it doesn't have an articulate voice. That's the demand. So we need a supply that meets that demand. So it's all, all about primary care. The next thing I would say is we need primary care to help coordinate the care. Some of this will be gatekeeper-like function, an awful word. A better word would be coordination. So some fair amount of work can be done primary care docs. Some work will need to be you know, referred out to specialists and so on. So that coordination process has a way of improving quality and moderating cost. Lastly, and I think this kind of gets to some of the transformation we see under right now, and that is we need primary care not just to eliminate waste, critically important, 35% of the spend in America relates to unnecessary, avoidable, unwarranted variation and the like. So we need to eliminate waste. That would, you know, if we were able to eliminate the 20, 35% of waste, we would have a couple decades where we didn't need to worry about healthcare anymore. So it's huge and important, but to get to my point, it's the improvement of health that we're after now. So we have much better tools, data analytics, artificial intelligence, and so on. But this the business about better personal whole person care to patients to prevent illness, to predict it, to make them healthier, again, all to reduce the demand on the system and the costs that come from it. So it isn't just eliminating waste, which was really our mantra for a decade or two in the coordinated care, integrated care world, but it's now quite a bit more involving also this outreach to improve health. And this gets us into the social determinants of health. And so those won't be handled by every primary doctor, doctor up and down the block, but clearly we know that is a critically important area in terms of moderating costs. Don, thank you. What a great way to start the conversation. And I love how you referred to those three tiers of primary care and the transformative one being where we really want to be. And there's so many amazing bright spots right now in the primary care landscape in this transformative piece of it. And, and you have scans, healthcare in action, street-based medical group providing healthcare and mental services to the homeless. There are high-touch advanced primary care groups like ChenMed that you referenced, Oak Street, Iora demonstrating superior outcomes with globally capitated MA plans. There are also powerful PE-backed MSOs like Allidade, Privia, and Agilon, who are enabling independent primary care physicians to take risk in senior populations. And we're seeing the, an emergence of retail-based primary care delivery innovations as well, like CVS Aetna and the JV between Village MD and Walgreens. On the commercially insured side, we're seeing DPC companies like Eversight Health and, and Crossover working with self-insured employers to lower costs and improve care for populations. 
And they're also providers of in-home field-based complex primary care innovations like concerto care and Geisinger at home. I could go on and on and, and the list of exemplars in primary care to innumerable to mention each and every one of them. But uh, the common denominator for all of these innovative primary care companies is, is risk-based payment, technology innovation, virtual care adoption, and high-touch consumer-centric care delivery models. With such a burst and profusion in this vast array of primary care innovation, can you explain why it's taking so long to get here and what is it driving primary care innovation in the healthcare landscape? And what do you see as possibly being the predominant model for the future of primary care in this country? Great question. I've been pinching myself and kicking myself here for a couple of decades on this really very question because we've had integrated decapitated care in the United States of America for a long time. So at least several decades now. And even in these models several decades ago, they were primary care centric. But I don't think we really achieved the optimization and maximization of primary care to an extent anywhere near what we're seeing now that is rise to this profusion. So I sort of I want to almost like tip my hat to the forebears from the past. There always has been primary care and in lots of cases used very intelligently. But I think the heart of your question is why now? Why the profusion? What's with this explosion? And I think there's a bunch of reasons going on. One, and this will sound sort of prosaic, is that the world, I think, has seen that some of the other models that are at work, so take it, take the alternative payment models, not many of them delivered savings to CMS, the MSSP ACO program, while good, it's not great because it's still based on a fee-for-service platform and so on. So there hasn't been really other alternatives that somehow look good or attract a lot of interest. Whereas primary care, the world has seems to have sort of woken up and learned that it is the tool to eliminate waste. When you eliminate waste, every dollar you save by an unnecessary ED visit or an admission, goes straight to the bottom line is profit. And so there's a treasure trove of profit in the elimination of waste, and the investment community has seen that. Now, the whole role of the investment community, venture capital firms, private equity firms, and, and then even publicly traded uh, approaches is controversial, to be sure, and much can be said about it, I'm sure we will. But nonetheless, that capital has been important in a very, very socially good way. Now, there's other concerns about it, but speaking with my sort of societal hat on, it's funding the proliferation of primary care and coordinated care across the country. I mean, we ought to stop and pause and just go, let's repeat that. It's funding the proliferation of what we really want, which is a value-based system. So we should be tipping our hat and thanking the investment community for helping to do that because it isn't all coming from Congress or state houses across the nation. So that's important to note as, the, as we look at sort of the why. The tools are getting better. The, just the know-how is getting better. There's just so much more money to be made in intelligent prediction through predictive modeling and the like, and then prevention. The avoidance of illness is so much more effective in terms of reducing costs than the treatment disease. So the repair shop metaphor that we hear, this retroactive come and fix a problem as to proactively predicting conditions and then preventing them. There's just a world of difference in terms of quality and cost. So you take that all together 
sort of a long-winded answer as to, I think, why primary care now? Well, Don, I, I would be remiss if I didn't get your take on the recent acquisition of One Medical by Amazon, a hot news item that created a firestorm in the industry just a few weeks ago. At the Primary Care Transformation Summit, you moderated a special session with Susan Denser and Francois de Brantes to discuss this recent development. This $3.9 billion acquisition arouses tremendous interest and has profound implications on the future landscape of primary care. And it seems fairly obvious to say this is a signal that Amazon is in healthcare to win and will be here to stay. An acquisition of this magnitude would be a colossal failure if that wasn't the case. And I've been devouring my newsfeed on this game changer deal over the last few days. And my favorite commentary is from Scott Galloway's Medium blog entitled Prime Health. And in that piece, he says the following. The U.S. healthcare industry is a wounded seven-ton seal drifting aimlessly, bleeding into the sea. Predators are circling. The blood is in the water. And that's unearned margin, price increases relative to inflation without a concomitant improvement in quality. And Amazon is the lurking megalodon. It's 11-foot jaws and 7-inch teeth, the largest in history. With the acquisition of one medical, Amazon is no longer circling, but attacking. So, you know, I thought that colorful meta metaphor of the dino shark on attack was something that really resonated with me because it illustrates the potential for reordering the entire ecosystem towards value, given Amazon's scale and presence in the, in the overall uh, economy. And it presents a significant opportunity for them to pivot into full-risk Medicare Advantage into a scalable primary care model. So, Don, I wanted to ask you, you know, what do you think about the significance of the Amazon acquisition of One Medical, and what does it mean for primary care physicians and patients? And with Amazon's backing, providing One Medical with a huge financial war chest to expand into the healthcare market, how will this change the primary care landscape? So I'm, my voice is one of many that have been talking about this very subject now, trying to interpret it and uh, speculating on the future and so forth. And it's really, really important. I mean, I would, I would start by kind of echoing what was included in your question there. And, and that is that this wounded healthcare system is an embarrassment to, to America across the world. We're embarrassed, but we're also bleeding money in terms of waste and so forth at a time when we can ill afford to. I mean, it isn't really, I don't think, hyperbole to say that the healthcare system is to a certain extent at whatever speed, fast or slow, I don't know, bankrupting the United States of America, certainly crowding out other needed areas that need funding. So it's really important strategically for the, for the nation as a whole. And, and many of us have been waiting for a disruptor or two or three or five to come on in and help precipitate the kind of changes that we think are necessary. So anyway, welcome One Medical, welcome Amazon, glad to have you guys doing this. So a point I made during my interview with Susan and Francois was time will tell. We keep hearing people say time will tell in terms of what this acquisition will yield. Is it the first of many? Will it stimulate a lot of competition where some of the other well-funded players will feel a sense of urgency and likewise begin to gobble up lots of groups? These are all good questions and the answers are all a little bit speculative. You know, I, I would say with all due respect, of course, and great admiration, actually, 
I'm not even sure that Amazon fully knows what path it will take. I mean, there's a strategic plan, you can be sure, but what precisely it will take, well, they're gonna, they're gonna acquire a lot more groups or not, or just use this platform, I don't know. But I would say that, that on the sort of salutary side, this big introduction of money is a helpful thing and it's capitalizing on, I just love One Medical and its brother sister organization, maybe even more Iora for all the innovation they're, they're showing. So if you look at those firms and their offerings, so much of it addresses an, a real sore spot in American healthcare, which in a word I would call access, or maybe stated another way, the almost complete absence of convenience, all right? Almost nothing's more inconvenient, as everybody listening knows, than making an appointment with a doctor, a primary care doctor, and getting it four weeks later and driving there and going into the multi-tier parking structure, maybe getting a prescription, maybe not. Anyway, nothing but frustration and time. And so One Medical and others like it are addressing that with their digital front doors. So the virtual offerings, and it isn't just telehealth and telemedicine, it's remote monitoring, it's the ability to schedule and communicate online. I think that uh, Amir Dan Rubin told me in my interview with him that they have something on there was like five quote unquote touches virtually for every one they do in person. So they make them both available, but the patient base loves, if that's the right word, the, the ability to virtually work with a group and avoid that description I just gave of driving across town to a multi-tier parking structure where you lose your parking ticket and, and, and on and on. So I just really applaud One Medical, Iora, and Amazon for jumping into this. I think it's going to yield some, some big, big good changes. On the other side, or on the other hand, remember that One Medical is a primary care group, and as such, taking full risk, or some level of risk, it may vary from product to product, but I think if they purport to be global risk, they've got to pay the bill. The bills of the hospital, the bills of the specialists, the bills of the DME provider, and the ancillary care, and the imaging, and the lab, and so on. They've got to pay all that, and what's going to change all of that? And they have an answer for that question, but it's a really important question that I think we're forgetting about. Primary care isn't just the application of a little Band-Aid. I mean, it's the management of chronic disease, which is chronic and naughty and permanent and expensive. So they, they sort of have inherited a highly dysfunctional system that they're going to have to deal with and pay for. So that part of it, I don't think will come easy overnight because Remember, there still remain monopolies and all kinds of market dynamics that make uh, the payment of downstream care of all stripe very expensive and very difficult to manage. They sort of wish them well, but I also don't think it will happen with ease uh, overnight, like you might find in other retail sectors and so forth. So that's my take on One Medical and Amazon. Yeah, Don, you mentioned in your response to Eric's first question about how Medicare is such a prominent player in the market. And, and I'd like to talk about the vision for transformation in Medicare. Director Fowler provided an address at the PCT Summit and discussed the goals of CMMI to have every Medicare beneficiary in an accountable care relationship by 2030. With CMMI's 54 models, 
only five have ever produced statistically significant savings. And therefore, they're taking considerable steps to create a new cohesive strategy that drives model development and evolution. We're seeing work underway to streamline the model portfolio and reduce complexity and overlap that'll help scale what really works. And Liz recently stated in an interview, while there might be fewer models, they will move towards total cost of care approaches that will require a focus on advanced primary care and ACOs. So it seems like CMS and CMMI are throwing down the gauntlet to transform healthcare by envisioning a system that places comprehensive continuous primary care at its center. And this further illustrated with CMI's recently proposed Medicare physician fee schedule for 2023 that includes a significant number of meaningful policy changes to the MSSP ACO program that encourages growth of accountable care models among primary care providers. And I'm hoping you can provide your perspective on Medicare's vision for accountable care. And will the new ACO REACH program that introduces partial and fully capitated risk be an inflection point in the value movement? And finally, how do you think CMS will ultimately address the need for PCPs to access capital in order to build the infrastructure necessary to take risk in the Medicare program? Good question. I have uh, two recommendations for the um, transformation of Medicare. First, I salute Liz and the others at CMMI and CMS and Chiquita for their bold gold announced to having, I think it's all Medicare beneficiaries in a value-based thing by 2030. So that's seven and a half years off. And remember, we're already uh, 12 years from the passage of the Affordable Care Act. So it's hard to move fast in this glacial world, but their goal is bold. And so let's get to it and let's get it done. I mean, I salute that. And that's not unimportant that there's a policy decision and goal for value. I mean, if it was vague or ambiguous, we'd have a problem, but it's clear as day. So thank them for that. I have two recommended solutions for Medicare. And I'm going to start with Medicare Advantage, though you didn't mention it in your question, because it's nearly half of Medicare now and will be within a few years. My answer there is, let's bring value to Medicare Advantage. Now, people may kind of go, well, what do you mean by that? We thought it was a value-based program. Well, it is only in part, but it's in an evolutionary kind of status right now. And if you look at the LAN data, I'm speaking from memory now, only something on the order of 14, 15% of Medicare Advantage is truly capitated to physician groups downstream. So it's a small minority of the total spend is really population-based and prospective, which we think are necessary and really indispensable features of a, of a properly performing value program. So if you take that 16 or 17% or whatever that percentage is, and it's right in that, and you subtract, say, Kaiser Permanente from it, and you subtract the California groups that have been globally capitated for many years, that percentage looked at across the rest of the nation is very low. So true prospective population-based payment downstream in Medicare Advantage is really a rarity at the moment. Surprise, surprise. So I recommend incentives, mandates if necessary by CMS and Congress that drives Medicare Advantage to 100% population-based prospective capitated payments downstream. And also in, you know, done, hurry up. Let's get this done within years, frankly. 
that generates all these questions is, well, are physician groups ready to handle it? Maybe yes, maybe no. Are health plans ready to handle it? Maybe yes, maybe not. Anyway, incentives and mandates are the way to get that done. So there's answer number one on, on half of Medicare. The other half, original Medicare, good that it's being improved. And indeed, the changes to the fee schedule in terms of new services and the like that are including coordinated care services, this is good and we approve it. But the platform remains fee-for-service and is really the, the big source spot in Medicare and really in the nation in a way. As goes Medicare, so goes to the rest of the market, as they say. So original Medicare is critically important and critically screwed up, in my opinion, in that it is so predominantly fee-for-service. Now, the MSSP ACO program has been helpful, but it isn't sufficient, in my opinion, because it remains fee-for-service. We know that's really the bane of the delivery system, frankly. Where I get excited is the re ACO REACH program, because here at long last, it's only a demo or a pilot, and it's therefore not guaranteed it's going to become a fixture of American healthcare. But here you have the gold standard of what we want, which is these organizations called ACOs, REACH ACOs, I would think of them also as physician groups, frankly, are going to be prospectively paid capitation, uh, maybe global, maybe professional risk, depending upon the flavor. But all of a sudden, they will have all of the virtues that come from capitation will be theirs. It'll align all of the providers, et cetera, et cetera, within the enterprise to reduce waste and improve quality. It will demonstrate the kind of durability that we saw we needed during a pandemic and on and on. So I'm very excited about the ACO REACH program. So we've got kind of the pieces in place, but we need to accelerate them hugely. I think we know where we want to get ultimately. I think that we know in a way how to get there to a certain extent. I think we just need to stomp on that gas pedal quick. I worry about moving too slow. I've always worried about moving too slow in terms of the transformation of American healthcare. Slow movement is an invitation to problems. <laughs> so anyway, that's a long-winded answer on what we ought to do with Medicare. Well, it's a great response, Don. And I wanted to engage you more on this topic of primary care reimbursement. At the summit, you really hit home on the fact that PCPs are underpaid and underappreciated. In the cumulative effect of income disparities between PCPs and specialists has, in fact, lowered the prestige of primary care. I mean, primary care physicians have been denigrated for a very long time because of the money, and this has been a, a huge mistake in our system. The unsuccessful Clinton healthcare reforms attempted to address primary care reimbursement, and there hasn't been any major health policy since that time to address the, this issue, and we're reaping the consequences of that now in the current healthcare environment. Currently, only 7 to 9% of healthcare payments go to primary care, but it's responsible for so much more when it comes to the responsibility for downstream medical spending and total cost of care. And if we're going to truly commit to value-based care in this country, I, I know you would agree, there needs to be this multi-payer participation to reach a critical mass of primary care capitation in the marketplace. Additionally, We'll need to see payers offer long-term risk deals. I mean, PCPs simply can't effectuate long-term changes in patient health status that amounts to savings at the system level with short-term capitation contracts. 
and significant primary care investment and population health infrastructure, it's going to take time to recoup because the savings that are rendered through lower hospitalizations and unnecessary readmissions typically, you know, take three to four years. Can you elaborate on this need for multi-payer alignment to catalyze value-based primary care transformation? And assuming we get there, are you confident that we'll eventually see more parity in earnings between PCPs and specialists so primary care in the third decade of the 21st century will be radically different than what we're seeing today? So before I get to the crux of your question, which is the need for multi-payer participation, which we do, let me first talk about one of the premises that I think I heard, which is this issue about primary care being underpaid and underappreciated. Underpaid, it most evidently, it most obviously is, and you see that in the Medicare fee schedule, you see it on the commercial market that shadows the fee schedule. So there's no question that primary care physicians are underpaid, roughly half of what their specialist brethren are, and yet with a bigger job on their hands in a way. In other words, they're smart like specialists. They work at the whole range of illness and disease and so forth, and not just at, say, orthopedics and so on. So anyway, we should have much, much, much more appreciation for primary care. It's going to be the lever needed to transform American healthcare system. We need to be realistic. Do we think that the U.S. Congress is going to double the salary of primary care physicians because Dan and Eric and Don think it's a good idea? And in doing so in a kind of a zero budget environment to take money away from the endocrinologists and the cardiologists, the answer is that appears politically not likely. No need to elaborate on that. The silver lining, though, is when primary care is done right, which is to stay capitated, then in that event, the elimination of waste creates more money available to pay primary care doctors more than they might get under the Medicare fee schedule. So without disclosing proprietary information, you can be assured that the best primary care groups in the, in the country, think Kaiser Permanente, think of the, many of the California groups, you could think WellMed, you could think ChenMed, those primary care doctors are not getting a third of what their specialists are getting. They're getting quite a bit more. So the payment of capitation allows the management of the ACO and management of the physician group to deploy those financial resources as appropriate. So pay primary care docs more. So the silver lining is we've got a solution in hand right now. And it's also makes sense given the political realities. And that solution in hand also produces all kinds of other benefits to which we've all I think referred. So there are a couple of comments on the issue of underpayment and, and underappreciation. Multipayer alignment. So you heard me already say that as goes Medicare, so goes the rest of the market. And that's a truism, but it's only a sort of a trend truism. And it happens by reason of just sort of the natural flowing evolution and bully pulpit things. It isn't mandatory that the commercial market jump to capitated systems. They do so if, if and when they want. So they too need, and I referred to this earlier in my solutions for both original Medicare and Medicare Advantage, incentives, maybe tax and otherwise, and mandates. Thou shalt move to no less than blank percent of your panels and patient population has to be in prospectively paid models. There's no reason why we can't have those kinds of mandates coupled with incentives intelligently spread over time. We've been at this for a long time. 
It isn't easy to do capitated integrated care well. It's not easy. I acknowledge that, but it isn't impossible at all. We've got examples of it all over the country. Many of these players, they're able to acquire non-capitated groups and within a fairly short period of time, a year or two, transform them into capitated, prospectively paid groups. I just think that there are protectors of the status quo that exaggerate the difficulty of moving into capitated integrated care. When we talk about multi-payer, hooray, we watch self-insured employers get interested in primary care. Hooray, there's an awful lot of good primary care in Medicaid that really hasn't drawn enough attention. We are where we are in Medicare. You heard my comments earlier on. So I think that the stage is set for the early stage of the transformation across all of these models, programs, products. I mean, we need them because if you're a physician and you've got 56 different quality programs and pay fee-for-service here and capitated there, it just makes it inefficient to try and operate a, an absurdly complex system. So multi-payer, yes, please. Donna, we've talked a little bit about this, or you've alluded to it a couple of times in the conversation. I'd like to dive deeper, though, into the, the flow of private capital in healthcare. We know that private equity investments are surging. Estimated PE deal values for healthcare services doubled from 2016 to 2021, going up to $77.5 billion. Within primary care specifically, in the last 10 years, total deals have increased from $15 million to $15 billion an enormous upsurge in investment. The amount of capital being poured into the health sector and the velocity to which it's been deployed is reshaping the landscape and it's a driving force in value-based care. On the provider side, we continue to see an investor land grab for physician practices. One in five physician transactions involve primary care practices, a signal that investors are banking on profits to be made in the shift to value-based care models. A big driver of this is groups taking full-risk Medicare Advantage where practices are getting acquired by investors that are paying anywhere from $5,000 to $10,000 per MA life. And primary care alone raised over $15 billion from investors in 2021, which is more than quadruple the amount invested in 2020 with no signs of slowing down. The acquisition runway to acquire primary care practices remains long given the sheer volume of solo and small practice provider organizations and the current degree of healthcare market fragmentation, but it won't last forever. Forward-thinking consolidators will need to ensure optimal positioning to create and capture value as the industry evolves toward value-based care delivery. Can you share your views on primary care investment as we shift to capitated reimbursement models? And, and with Medicare Advantage penetration projected to surpass 50% of beneficiaries soon, Will we see a real inflection point for primary care due to the favorability of unit economics in the creation of value? So repeating myself a little bit, I generally have the view that this infusion and availability of capital is a good thing societally because it funds the proliferation of value, which is job number one, frankly. However, I'm mindful that um, investor capital, investors have interests, and you always, when looking at these pictures, you need to sort of to quote Francois de Brantes, it's the incentive, stupid. So you have to be careful with the incentives. And indeed, most private equity firms have a horizon of five-ish years, five, seven, three, five, seven, before they quote unquote flip their investment. 
And as Jay Crossan points out, that's concerning because will there be somebody to buy what they want to sell five years out? And if there isn't, what then? May we might we have chaos? There is, of course, the other concern that investors, and I would say all investors, but they're fingering the private equity world more than other types of investors, are pushing their debtor, borrower, physician groups to be more efficient. And some will argue that that push is too strong and that they'll start stinting on care. So that has to be watched carefully, and I wouldn't dismiss it out of hand. I would say the existence of quality measurement and performance measurement programs and other kinds of guardrails are uh, available and probably sufficient to be sure that the influence of money isn't untoward and overwrought. And we need to be managed. We need a, an evolving healthcare system, which is probably going to need, you know, you've heard me talk about mandates and incentives, but it's probably going to need more. And shame on me for mentioning the word, I'll call it regulation that have a little higher level of control or more intelligent level of control over really important issues like who owns groups and so on. Well, Don, I think that's a great staging ground for how we should be looking at private equity investment in healthcare. I mean, we, we need to be thinking pragmatically about the design of incentives and creating meaningful regulation. And that's certainly an important driver of the value movement. And another driver, or at least one that we're waiting on, are these uh, sleeping giants with uh, large self-insured employers. I mean, we need this employer-based disruption in the marketplace for primary care to make this transformational leap. And the employer-sponsored health insurance marketplace it covers about 157 million Americans, but it's dysfunctional and it's ineffective in producing value in health. I mean, poor health costs employers 530 billion on top of 880 billion they're already spending in premium dollars. And that's why Warren Buffett called medical costs the tapeworm of American competitiveness. And unfortunately, we haven't seen these employers stepping up on a mass scale. They typically don't understand capitated bonus arrangements for primary care in a value-based system. They're afraid of tinkering with their benefit design. They bemoan high costs in the current system, but they really haven't been a constructive force for change. And at the summit, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, he had some great points to make on this issue, and he advocated for the government to work with self-funded employers and insurance carriers to bring about this universal change. You know, how do you see large self-insured employers eventually driving primary care towards higher levels of cost and outcomes performance? Will direct contracting with advanced primary care groups, value-based pharmacy plan design and pharmacy integration centers of excellence, benefit plan design, and other things finally become in vogue for large self-funded employers? Great, great question. We are on the cusp of a really important transformation now, which is that the self-insured employers of America have, I'll use the word, and this is not flattering enough, woken up. They're smart. They've been awake for a long time. But I think only now are they really grabbing the reins and helping drive the transformation that's necessary. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that this has historically has been the case. I mean, these self-insured employers, they're in the business of, you know, making widgets or tires or delivering services. They're not in the healthcare business per se. Now, they provide coverage for their employees, so they can't escape it entirely, but it's not their business. And 
So they look to health plans, either ASOs, affiliated service organizations, or in a self-insured model or in a fully insured model. They look to commercial carriers in familiar names, United, Aetna, the Cigna, and the rest. And they, employers with whom I've spoke, you know, they kind of blame the intermediaries, these health plans, for not performing their job number one, which is to moderate cost trend and basically reduce the cost of health care. So they're growing beyond restive, beyond frustrated, to angry, and are rolling up their sleeves. And you see direct contracting, you see advanced primary care programs and so on. So anyway, I'm, I'm very happy to see the, the, the employers of, of, of America do that because as you say, and, the, and there's different views on the numbers here, whether it's 150 million or 250 million, a lot of America gets their care because employers pay for it. And those employers are worried about it in terms of the amount of dollars they pay for the actual care delivery. But it's also, I think, perhaps a little known fact that they're even more worried about health, the health of their employees because of presenteeism and absenteeism, indirect costs. So the employee that's not working very hard or is not showing up to work is very expensive to employers. So anyway, welcome the employers of the world is what I would say. They're not perfectly well positioned to execute the transformation we like. So the single naughtiest problem is that these employers, some of them are local, having some amount of market power and ability to do things. Some of them are national with quite a bit more clout, but here we have the issue that their employees are spread thin across many parts of America where there may or may not be networks of physicians, et cetera, et cetera. And it's hard to get those employees into the kind of evolved primary care model we might all like because it's not there and they only have two, two employees in that rural town. So we have a kind of just a kind of a matching problem between employers and employees and providers. Don, earlier we talked about how primary care has been underappreciated for so long, and we recognize there's a clear cultural hierarchy in medicine and PCPs are at the bottom of the caste system. Since our fee-for-service system favors procedural intensity over cognitive care, population health suffers, and the mental health of primary care physicians suffers as well. Because they're relegated to second-class citizenship in the medical community, many primary care physicians feel frustrated and marginalized. And the medical industrial complex makes it even worse by putting PCPs on a hamster wheel where they can't keep up with the demands of the practice, with many seeing upwards of 30 patients a day just to keep the lights on. The systems also turn them into glorified data entry clerks, with them having to deal with red tape from insurers due to prior auth requirements and other administrative hassles. It's been projected that burnout is affecting well over half of the PCPs in practice, with many saying the profession is actually dealing with moral injury because the word burnout is insulting and insufficient to describe the pain of practicing in a broken system. How do you think primary care transformation will impact PCP burnout? And should we make the quadruple aim a bigger area of focus in the value movement? So the transformation of primary care we're talking about will be an enormous boon to primary care and primary care physicians is what I think. First thing I would say to kind of break that down is that fee-for-service models are much worse in terms of burnout than our prospectively paid population-based models. Now, why do I say that? When you look around, you made reference to seeing 30 patients a day. 
That's typical. It's a high number, but that's typical in fee-for-service PPO plans, okay? Switch on over to HMO products, Medicare Advantage and the like. You look at some of these players, Oak Street, I think their panel physicians see something on the order of like, what was it I hear? Eight or 10 patients a day, well-med. Many of the capitated groups have their primary care physicians see a third of the number of patients they would in a fee-for-service model. So the payment model is really at the heart of the problem here now. In terms of sort of appreciation, when healthcare is delivered right, you have the primary care physicians doing all this good cognitive work. And I think they will just naturally rise in the hierarchy, as you say. And I think if you talk to physicians, Specialists admire primary care physicians for their ability to handle a wide range of problems that the endocrinologist couldn't possibly dream of doing. So primary care docs, they're smart and they're important. They're underappreciated because of the payment models right now. And that's where the burnout is. And that will all self-correct to a large extent when we get to 100% of the value-based capitated kind of models that we're talking about. That's what I think. Well, Don, it's such an important issue, and it's uh, disheartening to see that they're suffering out there in the primary care community. And as we wrap up our conversation, I wanted to end on some optimism. There's all these social and economic and political implications of primary care transformation, but I think you've made a really compelling case that now there's a elevated consciousness around fixing American healthcare through high-touch, advanced, tech-enabled, holistic primary care models. And, you know, it takes me back to Barbara Starfield and the work that she did. She spent more than a quarter century studying primary care, and she found irrefutable evidence that primary care prevents illness and death. Primary health is the only healthcare component where an increased supply is associated with better population health and more equitable outcomes. And for this reason, primary care is a common good, making the strength and quality of the country's primary care services a public concern. So with this fundamental truth about the power of primary care, I, I wanted to engage you on the optimism that we have for the future and you know how we're going to overcome you know, some of these headwinds that are holding us back. Uh, can you provide your parting thoughts on how we as a society can move beyond virtue signaling to instead signal the virtuous path forward towards primary care transformation? So the low-hanging fruit is to put more money into primary care. The ROI has been demonstrated in study after study. More payment into primary care yields lower total cost of care. Hello, no brain, let's do it. So that's answer number one. And I'm doing a kind of clip-clop in a way to dra dramatize the importance of it. But it won't be that easy. Where my answer takes me, though, is really social determinants. So even in a perfect model of prospective payment with primary care physicians appreciated and well-paid, we still have a problem in America. Hello, there are the social issues. So we know that something on the order of 80% of healthcare costs are driven not by the medical system, but by everything outside of it, whether it's the work environment or the living environment. I mean, I think of it as food insecurity, transportation, housing, those kinds of social problems are where we're gonna to have to go. Now, a good primary care system is probably the best platform for that, but we're gonna to need to do what 
our friends in Europe do, which is reallocate our spend. So we've heard over and over that we spend about the same amount as they do in Europe for the care of patients. Europe gets much better results. And the reason is we spend about two thirds of what we spend is in medical and one third in social. And the inverse is true in Netherlands, Germany, France, et cetera, et cetera. So they're able to spend less on medical, but get much, much better results. And the reason is they do a better job of addressing quote unquote social, all of those things that fall under social determinants of health. So so we look out into the future, we're going to need to do the social part better and better and better. And that will be a big challenge, marrying social care, if I may call it that, with medical care. And that will be a challenge. It's on our tables and desks right now, but it'll be increasingly a challenge in where we're going to need to go. And it will be very difficult because as you're moving tankers is very hard, but also there's the economics in a kind of a zero budget world of taking away one man's revenue with another man's expense, et cetera, et cetera. So that will be difficult. And I shouldn't laugh because it's where I think the real ultimate solutions will lie to creating a far more equitable, effective healthcare system to which we all aspire and I think are entitled. Thank you, guys. Well, thank you. And, you know, it's, it's quite an aspiration for us to accomplish in our country. And I'm with you in solidarity in believing that primary care transformation is the path forward to save American healthcare. Don, it's been just a delight to be able to speak to you today about this important challenge. And uh, I appreciate all of your leadership on behalf of American physicians and the value community to really take us in the direction that we need as an American healthcare system. Well, thanks, Eric. Thanks, Dan. We'll do it again one of these days. I uh, would love it, my See friend. See where we get. Thanks so much. 